Well, good morning. My name is Patrick Chandler, and I serve on staff here as one of the church planters uh, that we've sent out in a couple years. And I uh, just want to uh, make you aware of something that's going to happen tonight uh, that pertains to me and also to Salt Church. And so tonight we're going to have a members meeting here at 6.30. You're like, I don't know who that is, who that pertains to. If you have gone through a formal member process, uh, you've done membership class, have done the thing, you are a member, that would be you. If you have um, gone through our student leadership, you're a student leader on our salt company team, a uh, leader within our, our students, that would be you. If you are somebody who says, hey, I've been coming for a little while, but um, there hasn't been a class or something offered, and you're leaning in towards membership, you have some questions about that, you're also welcome to come be a part of that. At this meeting, we're going to share some things related to the church, it's all church specific, but then also we're going to give an update about what God's been doing in us in the last six, seven months, in bringing us here and where God may be sending us in the future, and just some details related to that. And we'll spend some time praying for our church here and also praying for us as we go uh, off in a couple years. And so I'd love for you guys to come and just hear uh, and celebrate how God is not only moving for a future, but also moving here in the present through Salt Church. And so um, back this past summer, we moved here to Florida to step into this residency uh, to be able to sit out in a couple of years. And one thing that we were told when people found out that we have three girls that are eight, six, and five, when we told them that, they were like, you have to go to where? In Florida. We're in Florida. Where do we got to go? Disney World. And I'm like, okay, what does that even mean? Like, I, you know, like I've gone as like a teenager or whatever, but like I've never booked a trip to Disney World. How do you do this? What does this look like? And so when we first moved here, there were some restrictions that kept us from going. Well, those things were lifted and we were able to actually go. We booked the tickets online. We get everything set up. We've got all these things lined up. And we're going in. I'm like, do I have this? Do I have this? Do I make sure I got everything ready? We get to the gate. And I look at my kids. We ride the monorail in, get to the, the, the gate. I look at my kids and say, hey, guys, you see Disney World. Let's go home now. No. We went in the park. We, we enjoyed the day there. We had a great time as a family. It, that would be ridiculous to go all the way there, to drive all the way from here, to do all the work, to pay the money, to do all the stuff, to get there and say you saw it and so you experienced it. And I think that there is some confusion today in our culture, not towards entrance into Disney World, but I think there's some confusion about entrance into God's kingdom. I think there's some confusion about how do we walk and enjoy that kingdom? How do we live in this side of eternity in a way that glorifies God with our lives and not just do religious activities? There's some great confusion, and I think that God desires to meet us here this morning. Maybe some of you in this room are like, I don't know what the kingdom of God is. I don't know how you get in it. I don't know what you do when you're in it. Or maybe you're like, hey, I've been really wrestling with the sin in my life, and there's this one area that I just can't figure out how to move forward in. I want you to see during our time together this morning that God desires to graciously give us some answers to those things. Unlike an entry to a theme park that costs us money, Jesus has paid the price so that we have entrance into, into heaven, to have entrance into his kingdom. And as he's done that, some walk in the complete joy of that, some make a proclamation about that, and some are just curious. Like, hey, is this something that I need to do? How do I do this? What does this look like? And in this text today, we're going to look at, in Matthew 21, 18-46, just, just like us in the day today here, misunderstanding or not fully grasping what God's kingdom is and how does it work and how do we get in and how do we walk, we find the religious leaders in the same place. 
We find these religious leaders in Israel that they have been functioning in a way that is not living up to what God desires for them. As we, as we walk through this time together, I want you to think about this question. Through our whole time together this morning, the question is this. Who gets entry into the kingdom of God? Who gets entry into the kingdom of God? Now, as a church, we've been walking through the book of Matthew for some time. And we're in the, the, the final stretch that uh, we'll finish on Easter, or not long after Easter, we'll finish this semester. As we finish this semester, we'll finish Matthew's gospel. And as you look at Matthew's gospel, you can um, be overwhelmed by how long it is or how much time we spend as a church in there. But let me give you a quick overview that will be helpful to understand how important this turn that we're making into our text Paul started last week, and then we'll finish out all the way through the Resurrection Sunday. So how important is this section? In Matthew's Gospel, two chapters go from birth to age 30 for Jesus. Two chapters. From ages 30 to 33, we have 18 chapters. 18 chapters to cover those three years. But then we have eight chapters that are just in this final week. This week was an important week. This is not any more important than any other part of Scripture. I'm not saying that. But this week would be a week that would change the world. It was something that he wanted to give more details to the disciples and religious leaders and for anyone who would later look in and see, you can have clarity on who gets entry into the kingdom. And as we walk through this Holy Week, Paul's message last week was on from Sunday and Monday. My message today is from Tuesday. So, when we think about days, we're like, well, that happened the day before. There's no real tie to the next day. There's no real tie to the next day. That's not necessarily true with this week. God's kind of writing a story with this entire week. And you're going to see connections from sermon to sermon to sermon that are going to make this, this text come alive more as we walk through it together in sections. You're going to hear past the scripture and you go, I didn't really, really even realize that that was a part of Holy Week. I didn't realize that was a part of the week, Passion Week, the last week of Jesus' life. From when he walks into the, to the city to when he rises from the, I didn't realize that was that same week. And you're like, man, that story makes so much more sense because I see it in the framework of where it actually is. And so our big idea for this this morning, as we look at this specific section of verses 18 to 46, is genuine faith bears fruit. Genuine faith bears fruit. In this section, Matthew has given us, this, this one week, is over a quarter of the book is designated to this one week. And I think what we're going to look at this morning is a really important for us as we think about the importance of how it fits in the framework of the book as a whole and within this week. And the big idea is this. Genuine faith bears fruit. Genuine faith bears fruit. We're going to see this play out in two different areas. Two different areas, Jesus is going to express authority. And in this authority, we are going to be able to understand how does Jesus' authority connect to bearing fruit and how do the two of those have to deal with getting entrance into the kingdom. So let's begin reading in verse 18. We're going to go through verse 22 right now. It will be on your screen or you can follow along. Early in the morning, as he was returning to the city, he was hungry. Seeing the lone fig tree by the road, he went up to it and found nothing on it except fig leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And at once the fig tree withered. When the disciples saw it, they were amazed and said, how did the fig tree wither so quickly? Jesus answered, truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, 
you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but if you tell this mountain be lifted up and thrown into the sea, it will be done. And if you believe, you will receive whatever you ask in prayer. Now, as we read this, we don't, I don't know how many of you guys are fig farmers and you have fig trees and you know what those are. I didn't know anything about this before I started this, this week. Uh, details as far as this fig had as much significance. See, a fig tree would produce fruits in two different ways. Some types of fig trees would produce fruit before they showed leaves. And so the leaves being on there would be a sign that the fruit had come. Other fig trees would grow the fruit along with the leaves. And so either way, if a fig tree had leaves, it should have either had fruit already before, or it should be currently having fruit at the same time. Now as we read this, we're like, man, why is Jesus so upset about this tree? I mean, I know he's hungry, but like, why is he so upset that he curses this tree? But he curses this tree because it has major connection to the religious leaders. You see, the religious leaders of this day, they, they were the ones, they said the right things, they looked the right way, they looked like they had fruit, but they actually were just dead. They actually had no life. They actually had, they were just leaves with no fruit to accompany them. And so, in, in this section, as we look at this fig tree, we're going to see that Jesus curses this fig tree as a way to show that he has authority over creation. He has authority over creation. It's our first area that we'll see that God has authority is that over creation. Now, when the disciples respond to this, when I first read this, I was kind of caught off guard. Because they don't look at him and say, why did you do that? They don't look at him and they don't say, like, they don't say, man, like God just cursed that picture and God. What they're amazed at is how fast it took place. They're amazed at how quickly this figure out. They've seen and experienced God's power in his word, making proclamation, and they've seen what takes place when God says something and it actually comes to fruition. But what's taking place is, here is that God is trying to grow these disciples. Again, framed is that we're in the last week. This is the last days with Jesus. If they don't get it now, will they ever get it? And these disciples are with Jesus, and he is getting them to see, hey, this fig tree has leaves, but it has no fruit. I want you to think about that in contrast to the religious leaders who have the life that looks like they have fruit and looks like they're alive, but they're actually not. He wants them to not call out the, the, the religious leaders to the point to say, hey, you're better than them, but to say, hey, watch yourself to make sure that you are not operating in the same way. He is pointing out the fruitlessness of these religious leaders because he doesn't want the disciples to live a fruitless life. He wants them to walk bearing fruit. Now, interesting here, Jesus turns, and he goes from this idea of talking about this fig tree being cursed to talking about prayer. I was like, wait a minute, what, what just happened? What Jesus is trying to get these guys to see is, hey, I have authority, and in that authority, not only do I, can I tell this tree to die, but I also can do the impossible. I can take a mountain and do it over here. I can do anything. What you think is impossible, nothing is impossible with me. And nothing is impossible with God. I can do some incredible things. Now, pause right there. Don't want you to think anything strange in this passage. This is not some way of saying to the disciples, hey, ask whatever you want and it will be given to you. Be selfish in your prayers. It's not a name it and claim it. It's not, hey, I want this nice thing, so I'm going to ask for it. Sometimes as we pray and seek the Lord, just because he's able doesn't mean he's going to give us what we want. But when he says no, it doesn't mean he lacks ability. It's just he's saying no because he's trying to grow us and transform us as we trust and walk with him. 
Jesus wants these disciples to see what I want us to see this morning is that God desires a relationship with us. He transitions from talking about these guys not bearing fruit to saying, hey, I want to walk with you and have a relationship with you. And if you pray anything in my name, it can be done. Now, I love it when the passage of Scripture is connected together. Matthew chapter 17, verse 20. It'll be on the screen, I think. Yeah, Matthew chapter 17, verse 20. This is in the case of just a few chapters before where the disciples actually didn't have enough faith. They actually didn't understand. There was this boy who was ill, and as this boy was ill, they tried to heal him, and they couldn't do it. And this is what Jesus said to them. Because of your little faith, he told them, for truly I tell you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will tell this mountain, move from here and to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. What Jesus is trying to get these disciples to see is it's not having faith in themselves to do an action. It's not faith in their words. It's not faith in their plausibility of the outcome. Sometimes we think, hey, I can't pray that because it's too impossible. Nothing is impossible for God. And so what he's saying is, hey, don't have confidence in your own characteristics of your praying, but instead have confidence in God who can do the impossible. Have confidence. Have faith in him. Now, just so that no one gets confused here as we walk through this, Jesus is saying this to these guys that are in relationship with him. He is not saying that if we want to have entrance into the kingdom, that we need to pray a certain way or act a certain way. We see that before we can do that, we repent of our sins, we trust Christ, and we walk with him. And that is the posture in which we pray, because he's already worked. We work from our salvation, not for it. And so as we pray, it's not some weird thing earning weird favor with God. When we pray, we're good. When we don't, we're not. We're either in Christ or we're not. And in Christ, God can do the impossible. He can make the impossible more than possible. I see this happen with my girls. When they were a little younger, a little less, less wise, they would come to me and say, Dad, or I go to my wife and they would say, Mom, I broke this toy, but dad can fix it. And it's like the first couple of times, it's like, yeah, that just snaps back together. That works like that. Like, you know, no big deal. Like, this, this is something that just like took me two seconds to do. Other times, the toy started getting bigger, and it was like, hey, this Barbie doll house got ripped off this wall, and how do you put this back? But then they started getting a little bigger, and they got toys that were plastic. I don't know if you ever tried to fix, fix plastic that was broken. But you can't fix plastic that's broken. Like if it's snap, it's done. The only way to fix that is to put some heat on there and melt it together. It's never going to look the same. And it will stick forever. But my girls had a confidence in me. Because they'd seen me work. They'd seen, when they came to me and said, Dad, will you fix this? I put it back together and I'm like, whoa. But as they got older, they started breaking toys and breaks me. And I started disappointing them. Because I couldn't fix the problem. I couldn't fix what was taking place there. It's not that their confidence in me changed. They still had that same confidence. But what I had to do is I had to get smarter. So what I started telling them is, hey, you have a one-of-a-kind. It's the only one that's like this. Nobody else has one that's got this head broken off or this arm broken off or this girl ripped off of this. And uh, they still have confidence. So uh, they, as they get older, I, I'm sure that will begin to fade. But 
but God desires us to have confidence in Him, not in ourselves, not in our ability, not in even our plausibility of our minds to think, is that even possible? Scripture tells us that God can do more than we can ask or imagine. God can do great and incredible things, but He wants us to have faith in Him. These religious leaders were putting faith in their works. They were putting faith in their lineage. They were putting faith in their history. And Jesus is saying it's not about that. It's about the person who has genuine faith is someone who will walk in obedience from their salvation. They will bear fruit in their genuine faith. So for us this morning, if we're not careful, we can be just like the religious leaders. We can come in the room, we can be a part of the connection group, we can be a part of salt company, we can be a part of, of life and be around other people, and we can live lives where we don't pray. We can live lives where we don't have intimacy with God, where we don't spend time resting in Him, where we don't have faith in Him, and when we do that, can I just be honest? We're just like these leaders. I can do it, you can do it. And so as we have application this morning, I just want to ask you, if you're a follower of Christ, are you praying? Are you walking in prayer? Are you walking in relationship with God? Again, not so that you can say, I pray more than somebody else. Not so that you pray publicly and you do all kinds of great things in front of the people. You pray in different meetings and people are looking and you're like, oh man, this person prays. I'm talking about praying in the way that we saw with ISC up here earlier. They're like, hey, we, we're just asking God to bless this. Like God's cause to do this. We're asking God, would you move through this? You see, the religious leaders, they were really good at keeping up appearances and even praying outwardly. But they didn't have a relationship with God. God doesn't just want words. He wants intimacy with us. He wants to walk with us. He wants a relationship with us. They did not have that. Would it not be true of us that we operate like these religious leaders? But instead, would prayer be a daily reminder for us? Would prayer be a daily, moment by moment, second by second, however often, a reminder of to us that God can do anything? Would it be a reminder that to ourselves, apart from God, we can do nothing? Would it be an investment in a relationship as we pray and as we walk? Would we see God answer prayers not because He's due us or owes us, but because He loves us so that He would be willing to give us answers to would God work in this way? I have to tell you uh, how God stretched me when we were moving. We got ready to move this past summer, and the housing market's booming. Houses are selling for $10,000, $20,000 over, over asking price. I mean, just the market is so hot that as we put our house on the, on, on the listing, we literally had to go stay at a hotel for a weekend because there were so many showings that we couldn't get in and out of the house. And I... Becca and I found ourselves sitting in the hotel room, having a conversation going, can God sell our house? Now, listen how crazy that is. We have said yes to raise support. God's already provided this support raising. We've said yes to move across the country, to go to a place that we've never been, to be around people that we don't know, to, to, to stay for a couple years and then go somewhere else. We've said, hey God, we trust you with our eternal security. But then we're like, can you sell this house? That sounds so silly. It's almost embarrassing to even say out loud. But I just want to ask you, as you think about applying this text, maybe it's maybe it is you need to pray more frequently in your life and have more dependency, or but maybe it's an area of your life where you're not believing. Maybe it's an area of your life where you're like, God, I trust you with everything but not. 
And maybe it's something as simple as a house selling. Maybe it's something greater. Maybe it's a struggle that you have with sin. Maybe it's something you just can't get past. Would you trust and rest in God's ability to do even the impossible in your mind in that situation? Would God work through that? The next area that I want us to see, the second area where we see Jesus' authority, is that Jesus has authority in action and in teaching. Jesus has authority in action and in teaching. Read with me, beginning in verse 23. When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him, as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I will ask also ask you one question. And if you answer for me, then I'll tell you about what authority I do these things. Did John's baptism come from heaven, or was it of human origin? They discussed it among themselves. If we say from heaven, he will say to us, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, we're afraid of the crowd, because everyone considers John to be a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, it says that Jesus was carrying out these actions. What are these actions that he was carrying out? These actions he was carrying out is the triumph, triumph entry, triumph entry into Israel. It's, it is the uh, going into the temple and turning over the tables and cleaning the temple. It is the fig tree. Jesus is shifting. He is used, he does this elsewhere in, in other gospel accounts, he is using a actual happening, an actual event takes place, and he is teaching from that event. They didn't understand the event, so he follows it up by teaching, and he also is going to follow that up by applications and illustration within our text that we have left this morning. There's these three events that are taking place that the religious leaders are going, who are you? Why are you doing these things, saying these things, but Jesus was not only doing that, he begins to turn and begins to teach in the temple again. So the next day, they go into the temple, and as in the temple, he's teaching. What is he teaching? The, the Matthew's gospel doesn't tell us fully what he was teaching. Most likely, he was teaching about the kingdom of God. He was teaching the, the good news of the gospel. But he, then he begins, as they have a conversation, we begin to see his teaching unfold. And the teaching he, that unfolds before us is what we just saw, and there will be two parables as well. But as he is doing this, these religious leaders, they don't have a category for Jesus. But like, what do we do with this guy? He teaches as one has authority. He's doing these actions as though he has authority. He's doing different elements that were like only someone who has authority should do that. Now, listen, all of these individuals who are saying and questioning Jesus, they've all been given authority by somebody else. So they're looking at Jesus going, well, who are you? Why do you have authority to act this way in this situation they are not understanding. They thought that being religious and, and, and being this leader was keeping up an appearance. They were trying to guard their appearance. They were trying to guard their lineage. They were trying to guard themselves. And as a result of this, they missed Jesus, the person they had prayed for, waited for years, and Jesus is before them, and they're missing who he is because he doesn't fit in the category which they thought. Jesus responds to them with a question. He ties this back up to a previous question about John. He says, did John's baptism from heaven, was, did John's baptism come from heaven, or was it of human origin? See, these religious leaders, they're like, hey, this guy's not doing what he's supposed to be doing. We're, gonna, we're going to trick him. 
We're going to get him to say something. They will give him a legal indictment. That then we can press charges on him. We can get rid of him. We can remove him out of here. But when they tried to trick Jesus, Jesus used their very words to trap them. He asked them, who? Who? Where does this passage come from? What authorities? He's asking, what authorities is happening? Is it coming from heaven? If it's coming from heaven, then why didn't you listen to him? And if it's coming from man, then why are all these people following him? Now, just a side note, who is John the Baptist? John the Baptist is a guy who is a forerunner for Jesus. He is the guy that the Old Testament prophesied about. There would be one that would come that would make, make, make way for Jesus to come. And John the Baptist comes. He's baptizing individuals, preparing the way for Jesus, and they didn't like him. Later we'll see that he, he was literally killed. But so John the Baptist, they're asking this question about John the Baptist because this is somebody that's before them they have to respond to. What Jesus is trying to get them to see is who gets entrance into the kingdom. They were stuck not having an answer. They thought, hey, we, we, still, we don't know if we get out of this. He's like, no, I'm not going to tell you by what authority I do this. But to help them better understand and to help us understand Jesus gives two parables, and these can be illustrations for us to understand this idea that Jesus has authority in teaching and in action. Jesus has authority in teaching and in action. These two parables illustrate the judgment that is due to these religious leaders. Their due judgment is showing these religious leaders are not showing genuine faith because they're not bearing fruit. He's showing them who actually gets entry into the kingdom? Let's continue reading on verse 28. What do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, My son, go work at the vineyard today. He answered, I don't want to. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the man went to the other and said the same thing. I will, sir. He answered, but he did not go. Which of the two did his father's will? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, Tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in a way of righteousness, but you did not believe him. Tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him. But you, when you saw it, didn't even change your minds then and believe him. Now Jesus here is not only responding to these religious leaders' questions. He's, he's taking it further. He's pressing in. He's pressing into the heart of the matter here. And he's trying to help them see that are misunderstanding who gets into the kingdom. See, this parable these two sons. You have the first son who says that they don't want to go work, and they do. And you have the other son, the second son, who says, I will, but doesn't. And this is symbolic of the, the least of these, these tax collectors, these prostitutes, these individuals that are, that are outliers in, in society. They're the ones who said, I won't, but then when they did it, they had a change in mind, or they had a repentance, where they said, hey, I, I said I wouldn't, but I'm actually going to. I'm going to repent and go be obedient. These religious leaders are the other son. This other son is the individual who says, I will, but doesn't. They say things with their mouth, but it does not match their life. This parable would have been earth-shattering for them. They're going to get the kingdom before me. I mean, I, I was kind of caught off guard by your authority before, but now you're talking about the least of these getting into the heaven, getting into the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God before me. This was in their face. And as they 
struggle with this. The reason why they struggle is because those people didn't look the part. They didn't look like they should be in. They didn't look like they belonged into the kingdom. But he asked them, which one is right? And they say the first one. The first one is right because they actually did in obedience. They repented and did in obedience what God had called them to. Jesus ties this question back to the question on John, saying, you didn't believe him when he came. And he tells them that the least likely ones will get into the kingdom of heaven before they will. Why? Why will they get in? Because they changed their minds. They repented. Only those who repent of sins and turn to Christ can enter his kingdom. This section is not saying, though, it's not saying, hey, the religious leaders just continue on their way. Because of who they are, they're going to get into heaven. There is no one who gets into heaven because of who they are, unless they're in Christ. The only way to get into the kingdom of heaven, to get into the kingdom of God, is in Christ. He is saying to them, they're already repenting. They're already following. They're already believing. So they're going to get in before you are. Because he's trying to get them to see that entrance is not keeping rule-keeping, but instead it is a relationship that he desires to have with them. Remember, the one who did the will of the Father was the one who changed their mind and repented and acted in obedience. Those who rejected John are the same ones who rejected Jesus. Let's look at the next parable, the parable of the vineyard owner. Verse 33. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard put a fence around it, dug, in, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. He leased it to tenant farmers and went away. When the time came to harvest fruit, he sent the servants to the farmers to collect his fruit. The farmers took his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned a third. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first group, and they did the same to him. Finally, he sent his son to them. They were respect my son, he said. But when the tenant farmers saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they seized him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those farmers? His religious leaders have to respond. He will completely destroy those terrible men. They told him and leased his vineyard to other farmers who will give him his fruit at the harvest. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is what the Lord has done. And it is wonderful in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing this fruit. Whoever falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will shatter him. When the chief priests and Pharisees heard these parables, it happens. They knew he was speaking about them. Although they were looking for a way to, although they were looking for a way to arrest him, they feared the crowd because the people regarded him as a prophet. Here, Matthew, in this section, Jesus is trying to tie all of Matthew chapter 21 together. He's taking the whole thing and putting it back together by us understanding this full part from verse 33 to verse 45. And when we get to the end, I'll walk backwards and show you how this connects back to where we first started this morning. But as he is doing this, he tells the story of the vineyard owner or the wicked tenants. Go by different names. But the purpose of this can be best understood by using a tool called allegory. Now, allegory, can, when you're looking at Scripture, can be a bad thing if you try to say that everything in Scripture means something that's just not actually being said from the Scripture. Like the, the um, fence meant this, and this um, kind of farm meant this, and this meant this. 
like the text actually tells us what these things mean. And so when we use allegory for this, we're going to see a couple things. I just want to point, point out to you quickly. The first is that of vineyards. Uh, vineyards have been historically in the New Testament been used to associate with Israel. And so he's saying, hey, this vineyard is associated with these Jewish leaders. Multiple times throughout the Gospels, he's done this, he's doing this again. The vineyard is associated with these Jewish leaders. These individuals that are working on this vineyard are... They are representative of these religious leaders who are not receiving Jesus' authority, who are having questions about bearing fruit, they're confused. But then it gets into some other people. It says the landowner. The landowner here represents God. The servants that he sends, the landowner sends. So what happened in this situation was a landowner would buy a plot of land, would fix it up, and they would hire workers to work that land. And then as they worked the land, they gave produce back to the landowner, and the landowner gave them their profit for functioning in that way. So, when this takes place, this landowner says, hey, everything is set, I'm going to send my servants to find out what's going on. But instead of receiving his servants, he, they kill them. They beat, they beat one, and they kill, they kill the other, uh, maybe kill both the other ones, depending on how, how um, brutal they were in the stoning of, of this individual. And this is representative of these Old Testament prophets that throughout the Old Testament were saying that Jesus was coming. They'd been proclaiming Jesus was coming, but they died as they were doing this. And so just a, just a couple of them, just for um, illustration purposes. Isaiah was stoned in two, most likely. Jeremiah was stoned. Amos was murdered by beating. And then you come to the New Testament, John the Baptist, he was beheaded. See, the tenants were to be good stewards with the land entrusted to them, but instead they acted wickedly. Just like the nation of Israel did with the prophets. When the landowners should have sent judgment. He should have sent, he should have sent judgment on them. You just killed my servants and I sent you some more and you killed them too. He should have sent judgment to them. Instead of sending judgment, he sent his son. The son here represents Christ. Christ came when these religious leaders that Jesus is talking to and us in this room that are far from God, we deserve judgment. But instead of God giving us the full wrath of his judgment, instead he gave us Jesus who took our judgment for us. He took our wrath on our behalf. If we are in Christ, he took the weight of that judgment. But what's taking place here is the, these religious leaders, they're realizing that this is them. At the end of the passage, they realize, they recognize, hey, he's talking about us. What they don't fully see is this is about to happen. This son is literally about to die. As we continue through this week, as we walk through these chapters that lead to the end, uh, towards the resurrection, and then uh, the end of the book of Matthew, Jesus is going to die. This son is actually going to die. This is not just a story that's made up. Jesus, as the son, is representing God, is saying what is going to happen in these days ahead. It hadn't yet happened, but it was coming soon. The variable continues to ask, what will happen to these wicked tenants? And it is said they should be destroyed and they should be replaced. That's really strong language. They should be destroyed and replaced. Remember, these individuals that are working on this are representative of these religious leaders. They should be destroyed and replaced. And then they're like, oh no, that's us. We, we should be destroyed and replaced. But Jesus then quotes Psalm 118. And in Psalm 118, there's like a victory cry for the nation of Israel. They were the cornerstone. They were God's chosen. They were the ones that were going to 
be preserved because of, of what God had said to them. And they were going to be a stumbling block to everyone else. But here, God, Jesus, in these words, flips that on the head. And he says, I am the cornerstone. The son that's coming. He is the cornerstone. The son that will die. The son that will raise. He is the cornerstone. I am the cornerstone. Now, we don't know that language. We don't necessarily use cornerstone as a typical um, vocabulary, everyday vocabulary. But a cornerstone is, is the, the, the key stone in a building. It, it's at the corner of the building. It's called the cornerstone. But on it rests the whole foundation. On it, it is, it is the most pivotal aspect of the whole thing. And what Jesus is saying to them is, hey, because you guys would not receive me, you're going to be replaced. And you are going to no longer be the one who is the cornerstone that's protected. You're going to be the one that's going to stumble over me. You're going to stumble. And you're going to have judgment. And that judgment, if you don't turn to me, you will either stumble or you're going to be crushed by that judgment. Jesus is trying to get them to see that he loves them and desires for them to turn towards the kingdom. He wants them to respond to his authority. I don't want to lose this. One aspect here that in Matthew's gospel, Matthew does not use the word kingdom of God four times. Every other time he uses the kingdom, he uses the word kingdom or he uses the kingdom of heaven. The reason for this is Matthew's audience was Jewish. And so for Jews, they would not say the name of God. And so he called it the kingdom of heaven to be contextual to his audience. But those four times, of those four times, two of those times are in our passage we have today. I believe from verse 43, that this is because God is saying to them, you are going to have the kingdom that you thought was yours taken away from you and given to someone else. He is saying to them, the kingdom of God is not Jewish. The kingdom of God is not only for certain people, but the kingdom of God is for anyone who bears fruit of genuine faith. See, genuine faith bears fruit. But if someone doesn't trust Christ or turn their sins, they will be broken to pieces and shattered as they get the judgment that they deserve. That's true for them in this passage, and it's true for us. So how do we respond? How do we respond to these stories? They, they, um, these religious leaders are obviously identified as them. They're elements that we can connect with. But I'm going to say this. Authority requires a response. When you leave here in a little bit, you're going to get on the road, and on the side of the road is going to be a sign, and it's going to have a number on it. It's a speed limit sign. You cannot be neutral towards that sign. Either you drive this, 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 what the sign says, you drive under it or over it, but you can't be neutral and you drive it. You're parked. Like, so all our most authority requires a response. We cannot be neutral. So how can we act on this concept? The first thing that I want you to consider is that you would actually practice your walk with Christ. You would actually be individuals that bear fruit as you walk with Christ because you have genuine faith that's bearing fruit. You see, these religious leaders, they had great proclamation. They, would, they could proclaim, hey, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Christ. I, I am the, the temple. I, I do this in the temple or I have this authority or whatever they could claim. But they didn't practice it. Their, their walk and their talk did not match. So for you in your life, does your walk and your talk match? Do you, do you say one thing and do something else or do they actually go together? See, they're being called out for the hypocrisy. Will, will you, like these religious leaders, they had a choice. Will they reject Jesus? If they rejected Jesus, they were going to get this full judgment. 
what this passage said in Psalm 122 is going to be a reality, or sorry, 118 is going to be a reality for themselves. They were going to be crushed by their sin. But if they received Jesus, just like the son, the first son earlier, who said no, but then did what was supposed to be done by repenting, he would be received and forgiven. So will you reject Christ or will you receive him? Before I take us backwards to the text and make sure there's no confusion about what I'm saying and how these things tie together, let me just like draw you in for, for myself. I want to share two ways that God used this passage in my life to bring, to bring some conviction. The, the, the first is that in the area of prayer. So often in praying, I, I, I pray, not that I say the wrong words, but there are times where I'm like, I just don't think that's plausible. Like, like is that even a possibility? Like, like God, can you, would you do this? And I'm like, I, mean, I know we can, but I think I'm like, I don't know. Like, I, I had to confess to God, like, you really can do anything. But often we don't think that way. Often we think, like, God can do what we think he can. And we limit God in this box of what, we, we, we limit God in this box of, like, hey, what I think God can do is what he's capable of. But God's capable more than we can even imagine. So have to repent of this and say, God, would you help me? Not necessarily say a certain way and, and pray a certain way and do a certain thing, but instead have faith in you that no matter what I'm asking, whether the answer is yes or no, it's not dependent upon your ability, but it's based on your goodness towards me. The second thing is, I have to just be honest. There are times in my walk with Christ. I, I, I'm not like these religious leaders in the sense that like, I completely reject Jesus, but there are times where I go through the motions. Where maybe I'm checking boxes of a Bible reading plan, or I'm talking like, hey, I, I did a soap journal today, or hey, I did this, or hey, I, I went to this meeting, or I did this thing. And I can equate my intimacy with God by what I do. And God's not concerned with what I do for Him as much as He's concerned about me being intimate with Him. And I want to be intimate with Christ. I want to walk with Christ, and I want you to experience intimacy with Christ. See, we can, we can all do great things for God. And God doesn't want us to do great things for him. He wants to be with us. So much so that he sent his son to die by trusting in him. That we would not operate in religious duty, but we would have dependence upon him for every aspect of our life. Now, as I wrap this up, bring this all back together. This is not a three-step process. Do this first, then do this, then do this. What I want you to see as we walk backwards through these stories, is these parables and these illustrations, I want you to see how they connect together. Looking backwards, we see that faith comes before doing. Faith comes before doing. We don't, we don't do in order to have faith. It's, it's because we have faith in Christ that we, everything else flows out of our relationship with Him. Not to earn relationship with Him, but out of that. That being said, the parable of the wicked tenant calls us to genuine faith. The two sons calls us to produce fruit of repentance. And the fig tree to produce fruit in praying in faith, responding to Christ's authority. Would we not try to pray the right way, hoping to earn favor with God? Would we not try to do the right things to earn favor with God? Would we not walk in a way that we try to get favor with God that we already have because of Christ? He has forgiven us of our sin because we've repented and followed Him. We have favor. Would we walk in it? My hope for you this morning is that you see the answer to the question, 
who gets entered into the kingdom of God is clearly those who have genuine faith that bears fruit. Let's pray together. Well, Father, how easy it is for us to be just another Sunday. Be a day we come in, we hear the word, we go out, and nothing really changes. I pray that God, you would guard us against being religious leaders who do the right things with the wrong motives, the wrong posture. I pray that we would desire to walk in intimacy with you. I pray that we would not be individuals who profess Christ but don't practice walking with you. I pray that we would not be individuals, maybe, maybe there's even individuals in this room right now, that are like, hey, I have said I am a Christian and I am not. I know through God's word that I am not. I'm trying to live and earn something that God's trying to freely give me. I want to understand how to walk in this kingdom. God, would you have people not do like what we said was so silly, to walk up to the entrance, see it, and leave. But God, would people be able in this room, would college students and adults alike, 30 years from now, be able to look at their life and see, I'm walking with joy because Jesus has changed my life. And I want to practice that by bearing fruit because I have genuine faith in Him. Praise things in your name. Amen.